Shall we begin? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Almighty Father, send forth your wisdom, the word by which you created the world, to dwell in our hearts, Jesus, your Son. Send forth your Holy Spirit, unite us to yourself through gifts of understanding and knowledge. Form us by your Spirit to be stewards of the gifts that you have given us, the gifts of our souls, the gifts of our bodies, and prepare us to speak a word that is timely to our contemporaries through meditating on you and on your creation. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. St. Dominic, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Okay, hello. Uh, I'm Father Ephraim. Welcome to part one of a little series on science and faith. So this is based on the Aquinas 101 video series. Aquinas 101 was created a few years back by the Dominican friars in Washington, D.C. at the Thomistic Institute. So the way that it's formatted is that these videos are anywhere from three to 10 minutes long. And at this point, there's about 110 of them. So there was a long run of introductory videos, um, which were about who is Thomas Aquinas, then introductory videos about how to use the words that he uses, because often people will get interested in him and they'll want to know more about him. And then they start to read him and they're like, this is impossible. It's a bunch of technical terms. So there's helpful videos about specifics um, that you'll find in Thomas a lot, act and potency, essence and existence. And then Aquinas 101 went through um, the Summa. So St. Thomas's greatest and most mature work, the Summa Theologiae, sort of step by step, topic by topic. So after having done all of that, uh, it was a success and they received grants um, to do something that would be about the harmony of science, like modern science and faith. And so Aquinas 101 sort of moved then into a long series on science and faith, so partly funded by the Templeton Foundation. So that's where we're gonna begin. But just to give you a sort of sense of how it looks, an Aquinas 101 lesson is something that you can subscribe to and get in your inbox, and it includes the video, which is the main thing, but also a couple of readings. So you see that each lesson has like little readings, um, different kinds, modern things, and also things by Thomas himself. A podcast that you can listen to that's like, you know, if you're, if you're ready for like an hour-long talk that might be sort of tangential, might be very topical, might be a little bit more off the beaten track, there's a podcast paired with each lesson. And then also like things that might be useful for understanding this video taken from past videos. So for this one that we'll watch now, there are some videos suggested about how theology is considered a science, and then the idea of causes working 
together as one being primary and one being secondary, another kind of central idea for St. Thomas. So if this video is coherent, then you're sort of ahead of the game. If it's not, then the idea is that you can engage in these lessons to the extent that you desire, probably more than you'll want. So there's plenty of information with each lesson. So we'll begin with this first video in the Science and Faith series. And, and as we're watching it, um, we'll watch it. I'll have some comments about this general approach to science by the Thomistic school of thought. And then we can have a discussion. So please be you know, generating thoughts and questions, observations uh, while we're watching it, okay? God is light, eternal light. He is the ultimate explanation of all things and the ultimate end of all our desires. To know him would be the highest wisdom and to live with him in love would be the highest happiness and joy. And the good news has come down to us that God is indeed calling us. He is calling and drawing us to himself in Jesus Christ so that you and I and the whole human race might dwell forever in the house of eternal wisdom and love. But many people have the impression that this world is all there is and that science explains it all. Is that true? Isn't there something more, something higher than this world? Can faith and philosophy, science and religion work together in leading us to wisdom? Modern science has developed in many ways since the days of Thomas Aquinas. It has generated a massive body of well-confirmed knowledge. As a result of the rise of science, many questions and objections to the Catholic faith have arisen. For example, the theory of evolution raises questions about creation and the meaning of the biblical accounts we read in the book of Genesis. Neuroscience and psychology raise questions about free will and the reality of an immaterial soul. Scientific methods raise questions about whether miracles could ever occur or be believed in. And many people ask the question whether there is sufficient evidence for believing in any of the mysteries of faith at all, for example, in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Questions like these have led many people to become stuck in a tangled web of perplexity. They're convinced that it is not possible to accept the scientific picture of the world and to believe in God, to follow Jesus Christ, to accept what the Bible says, and to practice the Catholic faith. But that's not true. It is possible to believe both what God has revealed and the scientific picture of the world. It is possible to follow Jesus Christ by faith and reason working together in love. The principles and teachings of Thomas Aquinas show us how. In fact, we could go further and say that his principles and teachings light up the world as we understand it today. The world according to the latest and best science available to us. And it is easy to say why. Like the moon reflecting the light of the sun, the teachings of St. Thomas reflect the light of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Let's take an overall perspective, starting with our power of reason. All human beings by nature are endowed with reason or intelligence. We use our reason to investigate some specific subject matters, such as numbers, 
things in outer space, or living things on Earth. What results are called sciences, mathematics, astronomy, biology, and others. Take, for example, the field of cell biology. Equipped with scientific instruments like microscopes, scientists observe the inner workings of living cells, and by using their reason, have formulated from these observations a large body of knowledge about cells, their functions, and their internal structures. Something similar happens in astronomy, in physics, in chemistry, and so forth. Each science investigates its subject matter according to general laws of reasoning and also according to specific methods proper to that field. However, it is also possible for humans to step back from specific subject matters and to use our reason or intelligence to investigate reality as a whole. When we do so, we seek an ultimate explanation of all things, a theory of everything. I do not mean a theory of everything in the sense of today's physicists, who are working to unite the theory of general relativity and quantum mechanics, but a theory of everything in the classic sense of the word, wisdom. Wisdom, in the classic sense, is an all-embracing understanding of reality as a whole, in light of the first principle or cause of all things. Such is the aim of philosophy in the perennial tradition, and the world cries out for such a philosophical investigation. After all, the world displays a massive amount of order, beauty, and harmony. All of our modern science brings to light even more order, more beauty, and more harmony than ancient people ever knew and in even greater detail. Now, human beings are naturally drawn to seek the explanation of it all. When we human beings follow our rational instincts to understand it all, we are naturally led to catch a glimpse of God, and He illuminates our understanding of everything. The world today stands more than ever in need of such wisdom. So let us follow our rational instincts and seek the explanation of all things. St. Thomas Aquinas would advise us that as we use the light of reason that belongs to human beings by nature, we should also have an open mind to the supernatural, to the possibility that by grace, a higher light could illuminate our minds. This supernatural light, the light of faith, does not extinguish the light of reason or undermine the truths discovered by the human sciences. Rather, it supplements and aids reason, helping us to see more deeply into the truth of reality as a whole, which comes from God and has its ultimate destiny in Him. Indeed, we can be confident that when we search for answers to ultimate questions with minds open to the supernatural, God, the good God who dwells in unapproachable light will come to teach us in love. His truth and love comes to us, shining on the face of Jesus Christ. When we believe in him by faith and use all our reason and intelligence and science in our quest, surely the light of his truth will dawn gradually in the depths of our minds and illuminate everything. For readings, podcasts, and more videos like this, go to Aquinas101.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for one of our free video courses on Aquinas. And don't forget to like and share with your friends, because it matters what you think.
Okay, so um, I'll just begin by saying a little bit about um, the choice to do this Science and Faith series, um, and be, just because I was there. Uh, so uh, I was ordained in 2020, and my first assignment after ordination to the priesthood was to the Thomistic Institute. So that was a matter of going from the seminary where I studied um, to be assigned at the seminary where I studied and to continue working in a sort of academic apostolate. So this is an apostolate, uh, a mission of the Dominican friars of the House of Studies. And uh, we tended to find that going around to American colleges, um, people were really interested in St. Thomas. And coming from the world of theology, believe it or not, that was a surprise. So St. Thomas in the world of theology is not considered in vogue, or at least for the past 50 years. St. Thomas was sort of considered to be old news. And the way that St. Thomas used to be treated was that he had the explanation for everything. He represented the synthesis of all knowledge of faith and reason and science. And so he should be basically the guy that we follow in everything. And so people were taught using manuals that basically took St. Thomas's writings and, and turned them into almost like math books, like geometry books with principles, proofs, and tried to cover everything in a way that was Thomistic, um, but without making reference to St. Thomas himself. And in the church, there was a big adverse reaction to this. So maybe heard things about the Second Vatican Council, Vatican II. One of the things about Vatican II was that we kind of got rid of St. Thomas. St. Thomas was crusty, and we wanted to get back to the church fathers and especially to the scriptures. So in theology, there was a drive to get beyond the Middle Ages and keep going further back to where things were young and fresh, the church fathers and the scriptures. Okay, so it's like, so in theology, you have a lot of Catholics who wanted to, they wanted newness. They wanted to confront the questions of the modern world, and they also wanted to be new in the spirit, the way that the early church was. So both of these things, they were like, okay, we got to get over this classical way of thinking, which keeps us from listening to modern science, which keeps us from discovering new things. And also, we want to get back to being like the early Christian community, where we're not all wrapped up in you know, books and proofs and propositions and, and knowledge. So for these reasons, you'll find that in the church, St. Thomas usually needs a big introduction for you even to get going. But we found that, Dominican friars found before me uh, in the Thomistic Institute, that you show up at a college campus and you start to sort of say these things that, you know, people used to think were the sort of boring old things that Catholics say. And the students were just like wide-eyed, jaws open, fascinated with this whole idea that St. Thomas was like punk rock. He was, he was something which they had no idea existed. So basically the generation before had done a good job of erasing the memory uh, what the Romans called the damnatio memoriae, you know, the conquered enemy, 
rub his name off of all the buildings, just get him out of here. So it's like, who is Thomas Aquinas? And is he smart? And does he have an explanation for things? So step by step, we sort of said, uh, yes, he has, a, he has an idea about that. He has something to say about this. We have a way of thinking about this kind of science. And this was really attractive, especially to students in secular universities. So St. Thomas himself existed in a time where what he was saying was considered kind of um, offbeat. He was too accepting of certain modern scientific ideas of his time. And so I think, again, he has that appearance. He looks um, new and adventurous and confident, weirdly confident in the power of reason. So, okay, so you have this especially American college student level fascination with St. Thomas. And so we kind of just took that and ran with it and kept going, kept going to new universities, starting groups, finding groups of students who were enthusiastic about St. Thomas, and especially asking them, like, what do you want to have in your group? So they'd be like, well, we want to have a talk about um, neuroscience. Say, okay, there's plenty of Thomists who are either expert in that or experts in theology and philosophy and, and sort of conversant in that. And so you can just have a million talks about neuroscience and the soul. So biting off little things here and there. Um, dabbling in the sciences in the plural and using the thought of St. Thomas to kind of guide a modern approach with classic concepts, having a kind of confidence in the power of reason to not destroy the certainty of faith, to not contradict the faith, and even to help science to do its job more effectively. So, um, going around to different schools, you find even professors who would come out of the woodwork and say, hey, I am a biologist or an astronomer, um, and I discovered Thomas Aquinas on my own, and I found him very interesting, and I'd like to give a talk, even though what I do is, is scientific. So collecting these people into our little, our little uh, posse, it was, it was very organic, and so Science and Faith is a series which is not only Dominican friars, but there are videos also by uh, lay scientists, so the third video, I think, is Dr. Karin Oberg, who's like a Harvard astrophysicist, which just, you know, obviously sounds very impressive. We're very proud of that. Put her everywhere we possibly can. But uh, so I just want to give that sense that, like, this is a sort of interesting um, American situation that I think that some phrases that Father James Brent used. So one is like, follow the natural instincts of reason. I think that that's an American scientific impulse, not necessarily shared with the rest of the world, especially the old European way of thinking scientifically. So we have a, an instinctive curiosity, which is not necessarily weighed down by a lot of history. Okay, so that's, that's my sort of read of things. Um, that in America, we have a desire to know, to make things. Uh, it's pragmatic. 
it's a desire to understand the world, but it's also to, you know, be excellent in technology, to heal, to build, to be great. So we're willing to follow our natural instincts of reason, whereas in the sort of old world uh, of European Enlightenment thought, there are times in which you might have an instinct, your reason might have an instinct to say, I think this is happening because of this. But that kind of explanation, say an explanation about an animal doing something because it has a desire to gain some good, be like, that's ruled out. That's called final causality, that's Aristotelian, and it's ancient, and it's worthless. In the American, and to some degree English, um, you know, British, but English-speaking scientific tradition, there's a bit more openness to different kinds of scientific explanation that might not necessarily fit into the way that Galileo thought, or the way that Descartes wanted things to work, or the way that Spinoza wanted things to be systematically presented. There's a bit more just sort of Wild West quality to the scientific research. And I think that that fits well with a more ancient way of thinking. And then Father Brent also brought up, you know, the sort of keeping your mind open to the supernatural. So that's sort of a funny phrase, keeping your mind open to the supernatural. So continuing this idea of trusting the instincts of reason, that reason is part of our soul, part of our being human, and we want to know as much as we possibly can. And if we can know things that are even beyond our powers, if there's some way that we could rig things up where we're able to transcend our own powers of knowledge and arrive at knowledge that goes beyond the human, then we're willing to do that. As opposed to saying, from the start, that's ruled out. So. An example of this would be like, um, maybe this is a, not a simple example, not a straightforward you know, person to bring up, but William James. Uh, the American psychologist William James was very interested in mystical experience and wanted to sort of see how far science would take him in understanding mystical experience. And in a way, he lies at the roots of certain modern psychology schools of thought, or ways of thinking, or even theses which, which continue to have influence. So, whereas maybe other scientific approaches would rule out the supernatural, I think that the American inclination, you know, we are this, we're kind of a nature religion country. We've got Emerson focusing on the transcendent. We've got William James studying Teresa of Avila to figure out how the human soul works and how religious experiences are to be categorized or understood as if they were just, you know, animals in the field. And so you have this openness to understanding. So there's a lot that can be said about, you know, the modern scientific approach. Um, but I just want to sort of bring up, just to, to conclude, um, that... This, this openness to different ideas of knowledge, of science, is, is sort of new and American, but it's also ancient. So 
in the early attempts of human beings to understand themselves, there were a lot of different proposals about what knowledge is. So this is, you know, just go with the classic three dudes, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. So if we're looking at ancient Greece, centuries before Jesus, we have Socrates, who teaches Plato, who then in turn teaches Aristotle. And these three men were very concerned to define or to at least give some account of what knowledge is. Socrates sort of begins this by having a, a kind of conversion. Socrates has almost a conversion when it comes to the idea of knowledge. So Socrates, in his youth, was interested in what we might call kind of like hard sciences. There's a play which makes fun of Socrates for being too interested in like how far a bug can jump. So it's a satire of Socrates as this kind of hard science, um, like wacky guy. But Socrates had a sort of crisis in his youth and he thought that he had come across problems which made it so that knowledge didn't seem possible, that kind of knowledge anyway. And he sought instead for, what can we really know? This world doesn't present us with things that are knowable. Instead, it seems that everything that we understand in this world is sort of rooted in things that are really real in another world. And the best way to approach those is not through hard sciences, but more questions about, like, ethics. What is justice? What is the good? What is beauty? So Socrates calls this his second sailing, his attempt to set out once again in a new direction with a new wind and try to discover knowledge. And it has this very ethical quality. But he also talked a lot about numbers. He used numbers as examples a lot. And you can see that in his student, Plato, the idea of math really took a hold. So we can sort of thank Plato for taking math and making it really central to the idea of science. Plato followed Socrates in having these questions about the good and justice and putting those foremost in our task as human beings to discover, you know, what is the good, not only for me, but the good itself. But he thought that math, geometry, mathematical knowledge had a special status and was particularly trustworthy. And he, together with Socrates, connected this to the immortality of the soul. So that when we're seeking knowledge, what we're doing is we're discovering that there are things which are not just true for me, not just true to the eyes, not just true according to a certain society's conception, but they're always true. And then, these men thought, the fact that we have access to something which is eternal means that there's something eternal in us, something that is capable of lasting forever. So there's a high stakes game being played with knowledge, where if it's true what Socrates and Plato thought about knowledge, 
it means something for all of the human race. It means that our life is not essentially just this life which begins in our birth and ends in our death, but it's something that goes on forever. So that affected the way that the questions were asked about knowledge. But at the same time, with both of these guys, you have a kind of skepticism about knowing about this world. So there's a sort of general uneasiness about our ability to access any kind of eternal knowledge about this world. So, following Socrates and Plato, Plato's student, Aristotle, has a sort of surprising desire to translate this idea of knowledge, the knowledge of eternal and certain things, into that thing that Socrates, back in the day, had abandoned, to sort of come full circle and to look at this world in the terms of eternal knowledge, identifying that the things which Plato saw in heaven did not have some kind of totally abstract existence as what Plato called forms, existing as ideas, theoretical beings, but that those forms were what made this world real and intelligible. So Aristotle sort of brought the heavens down by thinking through this world in the same terms that Plato and Socrates had given. So that means that our immortal souls, which are able to know eternal realities, know them not only as something outside of this world, this falling apart, disastrous, politically unstable, um, frightening, uh, gluttonous and lustful world, but that planted in this world are forms which can also be understood. Forms which, even though they belong to things which come into, into existence and pass away, things which look one way from this angle but a different way from that angle, even though there's all of this variability, Aristotle thought, I have discovered a way to know true things about this world. And so you see that there's this conversation going on about knowledge. Aristotle called science one form of knowledge. So there's different kinds of knowledge. And science is knowledge of something through its causes. Knowledge of real beings in terms of what causes them in such a way that we can identify the causes of things and we can say, I have real, eternal knowledge, knowledge which, which won't pass away, about this thing that will pass away, because I can give an explanation of it in terms of its causes. So Aristotle is well known for the search for different kinds of causes. So this is all very interesting stuff to me anyway, I don't know about you, but this is what I was saying earlier, a lot of this idea about different causes and knowing the things of this world was what the old world, the old European enlightened world sort of kicked off from. That there were these different ways of knowing, a sort of plural approach to knowledge 
That's kind of what was abandoned in the early modern era after the Reformation leading into the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, and which I would say has been a little bit um, rejuvenated through the work of English and American scientists. So that's a little bit of an idea of why I think that this is, um, this is a high stakes matter. And we as Catholics are able to speak for this sort of American spirit of discovery which is not just an American spirit, but is a, a research project that goes as far back as human memory goes. And why, when we talk about, you know, like using Thomas Aquinas to explain modern science, it's not just about you know, sort of like coming up with a Catholic way of understanding things. This is about our souls, it's about the souls of our neighbors, it's about human society, and ultimately it's also about heaven. So bringing these things all together, I think, is what, I mean, it's what Father James Brent tries to sort of show, that the truth of Jesus is what's shown on the mind of Thomas Aquinas, and it made him able to understand reality not only in the heavens, but also on earth. And um, so that's a sort of, yeah, testimonial to the importance of like uh, a science and faith approach um, for our time. So... Now we can have um, maybe some discussion, some questions, um, thoughts. Jim. Well, yes and no. So the question was, uh, in, so since St. Thomas was a little bit out of fashion after Vatican II, did the Dominicans stand by him? Um, so in a way, uh, one of the big movers and shakers at Vatican II was a Dominican who I think saw himself as a kind of Thomas Aquinas-level thinker. His name was Yves Congar. He was a French Dominican. And he understood Thomas well, and I think that he represented Thomas's thought um, in a way that was somewhat compelling, but he also wanted to sort of move forward. And as the decades went on, I think he did sort of let go of, of St. Thomas. Um, and I think in some ways he, he came to regret that. Um, in other ways, I think he was very happy with the renewal that it brought the church. And so we're always, I think we all sort of think of ourselves as like, worthy peers of Thomas Aquinas. I think every Dominican sort of tends to think, yeah, I could, I could do that too if I sort of put my mind to it. Uh, so, um, but another thing that comes to mind is that, again, um, to boost our, our great nation, um, in Chicago, the, so we have our Dominican House of Studies for the East Coast in Washington, there was a Dominican House of Studies also in Chicago, in River Forest, a sort of suburb of Chicago. Is that what it is? Yeah, a Chicago suburb. So the River Forest Dominicans had a special gift for scientific study. So these guys were very, so this is the sort of central province of the Dominicans, which is related to ours. It's, you know, we're sort of, there's a, there's a 
a flow back and forth. And the river forest school of Thomism, I think, quietly kept just sort of plugging away at the, the, the scientific research project of harmonizing faith and reason. And so, yes, um, especially in the American context, the Dominicans stuck by St. Thomas, um, they tried to incorporate a lot of the new stuff, but also just sort of saying, like, there's other things that we know to be true, not because, they're not true because St. Thomas said them. St. Thomas just said them in a way that was particularly clear, but there are things that once you see them, you can't unsee them. Knowledge is not something which can be copyrighted. Um, so I think that using St. Thomas to think through problems and to, I mean, at this time, you know, around that time, there's, there's sort of quantum mechanics. There's a sort of wrench thrown into the whole idea of science, which is very beautiful and interesting, the Heisenberg's discoveries about matter. And sort of like, all right, let's get to work. Let's see how this is going to go. Um, we have certain tools that we can use to try to understand this. Um, some ways of thinking about science have been thrown off, but uh, we're flexible. So, so St. Thomas is, I think that that's a, maybe a little known thing about him is that he's, he's really kind of acrobatic. Um, he, can, he can get himself out of any problem um, using a sort of small toolkit of concepts. And so I think that the Dominicans who were kind of science-minded um, kind of skirted the unpopularity of St. Thomas because they were just interested in developing um, developing the knowledge of the truth, ancient and modern, physical and supernatural. And so, yeah, and, and other Dominicans throughout the world, I don't want to sort of be sort of self-centered as an American. We're doing similar things, um, but that's just one that, that's, what, that's kind of what informs um, Father James Brent, uh, the speaker in this video, is the, the river forest approach to science and faith. Yeah, Brandon. I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I don't want to sort of. Um, definitely, it's been popular. So the Thomistic Institute has some, some chapters, uh, some student groups in, in other English-speaking countries. Um, and like, I don't really know, I'm not very cosmopolitan. I haven't, I haven't been uh, in, I've been to Argentina and that's it. And I think that there's a similar sort of new world vibe there where people are open to a lot of things that I get the sense that Europeans you know, it's like the way that Europeans live among all these very beautiful cathedrals, and it's sort of not that beautiful to them. They know that it's beautiful. They're proud of it. They know that they're better than us because their churches are prettier than ours, but they're not necessarily moved by it. That might not be true of younger generations. I don't know. I mean, you see um, all kinds of things popping up all over the world, um, interest in things new and old. So, um, yeah, so... 
So speaking of the American and the European context, yeah, I want to sort of, I mean, I, my studies were kind of in this like transition from the ancient to the modern, especially the history of science and philosophy. And so that's kind of how I think of it, um, trends of thought. But as for the people themselves, I don't know. I've never, I've never talked to French people for any great length. So students might be, I mean, I think the idea of a university in, in the United States is a little different too. I mean, I think that there's a sort of, uh, yeah, I, I, I at least get the sense that I don't understand how going to college works in European countries. Whereas here, it's a sort of like, you know, it's this idea of like sort of clean slate, new friends, discover your interests. I mean, there's a lot of bad stuff that goes along with it, but there's also a lot of just, you know, finding your major and seeing and discovering professors who get you excited about some topic and then being being passionate about that and then being successful about it too. I mean, we have that uh, drive as well. Father Hodgson. I just had some thoughts. Um, it occurred to me that I think one way that St. Thomas helps and, and can be a real ally in modern science, or why they can be good partners, good allies, um, is because along with Aristotelian thinking, there's kind of a, a balanced way of thinking. Um, and I'm thinking, for example, with some of the questions that were brought up in the video, you know, in the modern world, you tend to have well, one one sort of bifurcation was fideists and rationalists. So fideism is comes from fides, which just means faith in Latin. But it's kind of a more fundamentalist approach, where you see reason as a threat to to faith, um, and so you kind of are suspicious of scientific findings. Um, on the other hand, rationalism would reject faith or would be look suspicious upon faith claims. And so you have in the modern world, often in the news, you, you, you have these two voices that you'll hear. You'll, you'll hear the fideists versus the rationalists, you know. Um, and a lot of times, I think many people have this instinct. They said, but isn't there a kind of third way, another way, faith and reason, um, and an integration of both, and then trying to understand how that works. But I'm also thinking of, so you take free will, that's going to come up as a topic, you know, in psychology and neuroscience. So on, you also have this bifurcation in the modern world. You have determinists that think that there is no free will, everything is, can be explained by uh, the forces, the fundamental forces of nature. Um, but then you have the voluntarists. So you have like B.F. Skinner and the more, you know, the psychologist B.F. Skinner who was a, a determinist and he thought that free will was an illusion. On the other hand, you have John Paul Sartre who thinks we're kind of, or it's all about freedom and, and, and my will. And it's almost an exaggerated sense of freedom and my will. Whereas St. Thomas would kind of, and our Aristotle would look at this and say, well, it's, we're kind of determined in many ways, but we're also free in many ways as well. And it's actually, we are influenced in many ways, but we're also, that we have a lot of say-so in our actions too. There's this kind of balanced position. Um, or 
you think you're talking about different countries. I'm thinking of the idealism of the continent in Europe versus the empiricism of, you know, English philosophy. And here again, you have this sort of argument between people that are all about ideas and the abstract because they don't like the messiness of, of reality. They said there's, it's just, you can't really get any true, certain, true and certain knowledge from the messiness of reality. So we'll just look at the appearances or the abstract thoughts and the mind is what's real. Um, where you kind of look, you just don't know anything about matter. Um, it's all impressions and in the mind. Whereas you have the other opposite where it's all matter is real and mind is something that we just kind of, is, is some invention that we came up with. But whereas we would say, well, the, we, we very much believe in the, the material world, the reality of it, and yet we also believe in the life of the mind that abstracts from natural, our knowledge of natural things and, um, and so on. So to me, it just stri it strikes me that in modern science, um, without, them, without scientists actually talking about this, a lot of times you do have this kind of realism and you, there's a balance there that people might not articulate that we would, I think that would resonate very much with like a Thomistic approach. Um, and then my second thought, it's a lot shorter, is just uh, I think with Aristotle and Thomas, you have this unified way of reality, a view of reality, where I think today you have more and more specialization and people are just not sure how it all fits together. You know, you get so, you know, people writing doctorates and very, you know, very specialized in one particular thing. And then, then you have this phenomenon because they think if they're very excelled in one, one area, they think they're experts at everything. I heard there's actually a word for this. It's called ultra crepidarianism. When you, when you be, because you're an expert in one field, you think you're an expert at all fields. So that's that's a like um, that's a stretch, right? You have to you know realize, okay, maybe I'm knowledgeable in one thing, but that I have to realize my limitations and and other fields, and not necessarily pronounce or pontificate on everything. Um, but I think with uh, with Thomas and Aristotle, they have a kind of view of reality in which they see a kind of unity, as the video talked about, a unity to all reality, to all science. And it's, a, it's while they didn't have some of the, 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 the particular fields of science that we have today, some of the specialized, but I think they can easily fit into a more Thomistic Aristotelian picture um, in a way that you know, unifies the sciences and also sees faith and reason all together in this sort of unified way. Those are my own thoughts. I don't know if you have any thoughts about those thoughts. <laughs> no, that sounds right. Reality. Um, yeah, uh, we, I mean, uh, yeah, commitment to reality is something that it seems like a lot of people want to have. And so um, Aristotle had a, an understanding of how to be committed to, to reality as a whole and just reality in, in particulars. Um, I don't think I don't think everyone has an idea of how to say, you know, I'm I'm really talking about reality as opposed to something um, made up. Aristotle kind of found a way to say that he was a realist, um, which was yeah some kind of combination of empiricism. You know, some people mistake Aristotle; they think he's an empiricist, um, basing his thought entirely on material 
force or something like that, or, or matter. Other people, yeah, are merely empirical or merely idealist, let's see, realism. Um, there's a video from the earlier run of uh, Aquinas 101 on what, what Aristotle and Thomas were, which is called moderate realists. So they believe that um, forms really exist. Plato thought that forms really existed, but for him that meant this world doesn't really exist. This is not real. The forms are real. For Aristotle, it's like, yeah, the forms are real, and the form is like the dog over there is a form. Um, what, gives, what makes it a dog is that it has a form, and it exists um, in matter, and without matter, it can't exist, and without matter, we can't know it because we know things materially. Okay, so that's a little bit about that. But so, yeah, look up moderate realism, um, I think, for something very kind of liberating when it comes to, you know, how to, how to think about reality um, as opposed to just sort of vehemently claiming that I am thinking about reality. Um, I have to go. We can continue a little bit longer with Father Hyacinth, um, but I'm going to just call on Sean and make him tell us what he's thinking. Ask this too. Sure, I, I had a question. Sort of, um, Father Efren started the conversation talking about uh, reason as having, in my words, maybe a privileged access to truth. And then the end of the uh, talk, or the middle of the talk, talked about multiple ways of knowing. I think in reference to the four causes but it was a little more general than that, which sounds like the opposite of reason being a privileged act, route. So um, maybe my question is just a general question about um, these other ways of knowing that maybe um, science or scientific views um, leave out and how that differs from a more postmodern conception of truth. Great question. Um, I'll I'll give my best shot. Uh, I, think, I think, for one thing, for Aristotle and Thomas, everything starts with experience. And so science then builds on experience. It's a reflection over our experience, looking for common patterns, looking for when things are the same or when things differ, just, you know, distinguishing, observing, comparing, that kind of thing. Um, but it starts with experience. And while you can describe a sunset, you know, seeing a sunset, you could describe that scientifically, you know, in terms of the heat of the sun and the rate, you know, of it seeming to rise and, and so on. And you could go into millions of details with all kinds of math, but none of that would equal the actual experience <laughs> of a sunset. And so there's something about the experience Right, that's fundamental, that before science arises, that science can't fully capture. Right? The numbers on a page, data, you can't really capture experience. So philosophers will talk about that, what they, so they call qualia. Um, there's also ethical knowledge that they'll talk about. So if you're, you know, the, first, the next video, I mean, videos, forthcoming videos talk about sort of ranges of knowledge. And so any time you're kind of looking at the world scientifically, you're looking at it through a certain 
lens or in a reductive way purposely, and that's very useful and helpful. But there's a kind of range there. Uh, but there's another lens, you know, if you're thinking about it ethically. So you're not going to find goodness or human dignity or value, intrinsic value or anything like that under a microscope. But that doesn't mean it's not real. So we kind of, well, how do we know that ethics is real? It's, it's very simple, really. It's because we have this sense that uh, of goodness. We're good, other things are good, everything that exists is good. That's what we can call ontological goodness or metaphysical goodness or something like that. And that, so that perception that things are good is not something that falls under the range of scientific analysis, right? But it's, it's, it's true nonetheless, and it's all the more important. Um, and why ethics is, is objective and not just subjective is because things have real value. And when I treat things according to the value that they have, I'm acting well. If I don't treat things according to the value that they have, I treat them less than the value that they have, I'm not acting well. So right there, I mean, you have a, a basis in reality for ethics because things are objectively good. If you were to say that ethics is completely subjective, it's all made up, it's just an invention of societies or moral or minds or something like that, what you would be implying is that there's no objective, nothing has objective value. There's no, there's no object, you know, there's no objective human dignity. There's no value of animals or the world or anything like that. That's a pretty scary thought if, you, if somebody starts thinking about that. Um, but if they can come to that conclusion, if they're only looking at the world through a scientific lens, they might think there is no goodness. But they're forgetting that on a wider, as you step back a little bit, instead of just looking at the world through the scientific um, uh, perspective, if you kind of get a wider perspective, you, you also pick up through experience you, uh, the goodness of reality. And, and that, will give, that gives you an objective basis for, for ethics. So ethical knowledge, certainly knowledge about God, you're, there's a lot of abstraction from... Now, it gets a little confusing here because um, in the modern world, we tend to think of philosophy as in the humanities. You know, that it's more like poetry <laughs> and, some, and, and theology as well, which is kind of funny. But in the ancient world, Aristotle, Thomas, faith would have been under knowledge, under scientia, true and certain knowledge. Um, and also uh, metaphysics and ethics, all of these things, um, well, they'd be practical, but they would have, they wouldn't be, they're not just subjective. But so the very way that modern people divide the, science, the hard sciences, knowledge, and, um, and then the humanities is a way that's completely foreign to, to St. Thomas or Aristotle, and to think of one as knowledge and these others as not, is already this bias against. Um, but hopefully that helps. So philosophical knowledge, ethical knowledge, you know, knowledge that stems from faith and God's revelation, um, experience, there are a lot of things that kind of fall outside of just the scientific way of approaching the world. Does that help? Okay. Yes? 
Um, interesting thought. Sorry, just can, if you can clarify your question a little more. So your, your, your question is, um, so what do I think of that bifurcation? Yeah, so, um, so, so for Aristotle, like the, the, the way he divides the sciences and, and St. Thomas, it, it actually makes a lot of sense. For, you know, for, you have natural science at the beginning, so that's studying the natures of things, right? If you focus on living things, that's biology. If you study, you know, rocks and things, that's geology, right? And if you, so those, those sort of things as they exist, looking for common natures and common patterns and so on. Um, and, and then distinguishing things uh, according to species and, and so on. So if you abstract one level, so you, um, so natural science, there'd be experience, but natural science would abstract one level to look at common natures. And then if you abstract from common natures, just the idea of number, then you get mathematics. And then if you try to abstract one more time, um, philosophers will debate on these points, but just try to, to be simple about it. If you abstract one more time, so now you abstract being, or you, you sort of take away the idea of number, and you're just thinking about being in itself, and that would be sort of metaphysics. So it's, it's sort of, it's almost like this tiered way of reality with, um, it's all kind of seen together, you know, as unified together. Um, and, or say, take um, in ethics, the practical. At, at the bottom, you would have ethics, which is how to order one's life towards the good. On top of that, you have economics. You're like, what? Well, economics in the ancient was sort of the, the study of the household. Oikos in Greek is, is household. So you first study how the individual is ordered towards the good. And then one level up from that, how the family is oriented towards the good, economics. And then you go one level up from that, how the whole society is ordered to good, and that's politics. So, but when was the last time in a university you saw the connection between ethics, econo you know, economics, and politics? Is it ethical foundation of it all? No. I mean, people try to bring in ethics, and who knows what kinds of ethics they're, they're bringing in in various ways. Uh, it's a good instinct, but it's like, in the, in the ancient view, ethics was the foundation of it all. So you can see how it's all sort of connected. And that's sort of more practical. So there's more speculative sciences, like I mentioned, and there's the more practical. And there's then a difference between um, techne and, and sort of art, you know, um, there's, there's building things, and then there's art, and then there's virtue, you know, under the practical. So you have all these different ways of category, and it kind of all of the unified, it all, it's all unified, it all makes sense. You see how things are connected. Um, and, and also the practical sort of springs from the speculative as well. So it, it, even the practical and speculative are connected. So it, it's, it's all kind of connected in one way. In the modern view, there really is no unifying vision. If people say, what's the, diff you know, what's, the, what's the commonality or common thread between biology and psychology? I mean, you could come up with things. There are definitely connections. But people would have to think, in what ways do we overlap? 
but there's no like inherent thought about um, how these things are all connected, how the practical and, and flow from the speculative. And, and then, so as I mentioned, um, ethics is over the humanities, right? So in the ancient world, ethics, ethics, economics, politics, it's all sort of, you know, connected together, you know, and built on, built on each other. But now, all of a sudden, in the modern world, you move over ethics to the humanities. It becomes subjective. And, uh, and it's interesting, but it doesn't really, all of a sudden, it's disconnected from the other. And then metaphysics, instead of being connected and with, um, with uh, you know, uh, math and, and nat the natural sciences, it just gets moved, moved over to the humanities, to philosophy. Whereas see, philosophy is like the specialized thing. But in the ancient world, philosophy was the whole because it's love of wisdom. It includes the sciences. It would include the natural science and math um, and language too. So Aristotle has you know, logic and rhetoric and, um, and all of these things are grammar. That's all connected too, grammar and then logic, then rhetoric. You, know, you have all these foundations and how you think about music, and it's, uh, it, you, you would be nice if you had an updated version in the modern world of sort of Aristotle's thought and things were more, more connected. And that's why I think Thomas and Aristotle, while people, yes, they didn't have microscopes and telescopes, so they were on, on some scientific level, they were very interested in reality and trying to find things, uh, you know, discover the world and figure it out. And Aristotle did lots of autopsies and things like that on, on living things. Um, so he's very interested, but you know, he, he thought that things were boiled down to you know, earth, uh, air, fire, and water, right? The four elements. Well, he, he would have been the first one to admit he was wrong if he's had a microscope and he knew modern knowledge, but that was his own, the best he could come up with at the time. So he was wrong about that. So people see that Aristotle was wrong about some of those things, and then they reject the whole of Aristotle. And they say, he has nothing to contribute, nothing to teach us. Whereas the truth is, um, Aristotle and Thomas, even though they didn't have these scientific, the new modern scientific um, you know, details that we, that we know, um, but the way they thought about reality, there's a lot that's still valid and very helpful to us, and I think could help modern science, and not, and, um, and, and so on. So, does that answer your question, or? And humanities, they would have studied literature back then, and literature was important, because sometimes people say, oh, it's just literature, but we know that actually, there's, stories come from experience, and there are a lot of things that just as science reflects, so start, everything starts with experience. Science reflects in this very rational way over experience. But you can also, in a very human way with stories, reflect over your experience. And, pass, and there can be wisdom you know, passed on through that. And that's going to be very powerful too. So think about, I'll give you one example, and then I think we should probably, I know the time's getting on, but you can say God is merciful, for example, to take a theological example. And that's actually a very powerful truth. But if you tell the story of the prodigal son, it's like there's a power there. It's saying the same thing, but there's a power there 
that it's not contained in just the abstract truth of God is merciful. And so you, you would know more than anyone, being in humanities, how there can be deep truths. They're not just subjective, but deep truths that reflect over reality and help us to live in the humanities too. So we shouldn't just write off the humanities as just all subjective either, right? There's wisdom there too. So we should really be open to wisdom wherever it's found. Um, and all of these things should be seen together and integrated. And ultimately, God unifies everything, right? That's another helpful. When everything, you see everything comes from God and is, you know, it returns to him, it gives you a real way of, of unifying everything. Um, once you take God out of the picture, there's no ultimate source of everything. There's no ultimate end. There's no ultimate purpose. Then it's just like you're taking out the thread of the, from the pearl necklace and the, the beads just go kind of scattered. And I think that's, to me, that's often, I think, what the modern world is. Interesting, all, all those ind individual pearls are interesting. They're kind of all on their own and, you know, um, and not unified. So... Oh, really? Cool. All right, last question. It belongs to you, Sammy. <laughs> so I think um, kind of like in the modern university, one way in which I've noticed having gone to like a, a religious, I went to Notre Dame as an undergrad, now I'm at Penn, is that, uh, like at Penn, for example, Christianity is like viewed with a scientific lens. So it's not seen as like an equal to science, it's actually seen as like the object of science. It's like in the religious studies department, you like look at Christianity like as a political phenomenon, as a social phenomenon, as like a cultural phenomenon. So it's always like viewed for its like uses, like what purpose did Christianity um, like serve in you know, in Europe or in the various like places that was practiced. Um, and I think what's really beautiful in the last like 200 years of the church's history, there's been this kind of tradition first developed by like Cardinal Newman, for example, where we talk about like religion as like a form of play almost. Like it, it actually like doesn't serve a purpose necessarily. It's just a pure kind of grace. And that's like in my own spirituality, that's how I feel, right? I'm in medical school. I don't go to mass to like, you know, gain truth necessarily. I go because it's like pure grace. Um, and one thing like I see in kind of like presentations like this or like kind of popular Catholic apologetics in this question is we often phrase it like, look, uh, Catholicism can help you like get here. Or, like Catholicism can help you do this. Um, and we don't necessarily emphasize, I think, what maybe Vatican II is trying to emphasize, that actually, like, in religion, you go in with, like, this attitude of, like, I'm receiving. Like, this is not for a purpose. Like, this is, like, just pure play. Um, and maybe if you could speak to that more, like, how we approach this with, like, is it really helpful for us to talk about faith and science as faith something that helps science, or should we talk about faith as something where, like, we're receiving from God? 
Thanks, Jeremy. Good question. I mean, my interpretation of what you just said is it's almost kind of the difference. Is it the end or is it the means? So that's, and, and I think your point is if we use Christianity as just a means, then isn't that losing the purpose of Christianity? Um, that's a great point. Uh, I think, though, that I guess the one, my way of thinking about it would be I'll just, so if, say, you take Thomas's notion of hope and faith, you know, because you have the three theological virtues faith, hope, and love. Hope and love, both for Aquinas, pertain to the will. But love, they, they're a little bit different, though, as they relate to God. So hope, um, hope well, I'll start with love. Love, love God, loves God for his, his own sake. Whereas hope loves God for the good that he is for us. And that's okay. So God is useful to us. He is beneficial to us. That doesn't necessarily take away from the ultimate God as an ultimate end. I think both can be true. It's God is to be is to be pursued for His own sake, but it also when we do pursue Him, it is redound to our benefit as well. So it's, it's both. Now, ultimately, our seeking God for our own benefit should be ordered to seeking God for his own sake, because that's the, the ultimate end. So otherwise we make ourselves and our benefit the idol. So um, so I, I think uh, I think it could it can be both and. Um, and ultimately and one way of thinking about this classically is we talk about the ex, the intrinsic glory of God versus the extrinsic glory of God. So it's like, can you glorify God? Can you, can you add to his glory? Well, so the, this is a helpful distinction here. Intrinsically, no, because God's intrinsic glory is, is God himself, and that can't increase. But his extrinsic glory, you can sort of contribute to. So when you grow in holiness, when you radiate his love, uh, when you become, you know, transform more and more into Christ-likeness and so on, then you're increasing God's extrinsic glory. That's the way it's, it's his glory manifested in the world. And in that sense, we glorify him. But ultimately, extrinsic glory, has, everything has to end in his intrinsic glory for his own sake. But you're right. I think you were, like, you were talking about play, not as a play, but as like leisure. When you do th things, enjoy things for its own sake and not just for as, as a means to an end. Like throughout the week, we work, and it's the very much means to an end kind of existence. But then on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day, it's kind of a day to sort of not be the cog in the wheel and to, um, to glorify God. It's time for relationships. It's a time to sort of break away from just being so productive and efficient all the time and enjoy life and enjoy relationships. And so, um, yeah, I think that's, I guess my approach would be both, but ultimately is, yes, there's the, God is the end of all things. And you, there can be this temptation just to promote God as always useful for us making us the best version of ourselves, that kind of thing. And I think there's some use in that. But if you pitch God as only this means to our own fulfillment, then it's kind of making God into a means to us, you know, to, to our end. 
Whereas really everything in true Christianity is uh, God should, everything should be ordered towards his glory as an end. That's the sort of end of all ends. Um, and that way God is God and, and we are not. <laughs> all right, well, thanks for coming. So we'll continue next week. Um, and um, we'll continue with a video. We might, we probably will do more than one video. So we might um, do maybe a video, a little discussion on it, another video, we'll and see how far we go. Um, I'll just give you a quick blessing. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So part two next week at seven o'clock. All right, thanks everyone. Have a good